0: Welcome to Macro Crunch, a bi-weekly podcast covering global investing and technology. I'm your host, Sean Bill. I'm a macro investor with over 20 years of experience and an active angel investor based here in the Silicon Valley, California. I currently manage $3 billion and invest across all asset classes, including stocks, bonds, real estate, and alternatives such as private credit, hedge funds, and farmland and timber. I'm also an active angel investor with a strong focus on the fintech and govtech sectors you can follow my work there if you're an accredited investor on angelist.co and don't forget to check out my weekly blog macrocrunch.com now i hope you enjoy this episode as much as i enjoyed making it thanks for listening Okay. I'm here with uh, Anthony Pompiano. Most of you will know Anthony as Pomp from his uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Anthony is an uh, active crypto investor. Uh, he has an active newsletter and uh, has a Twitter account that's followed by a lot of people. Uh, and really just really focused on the crypto uh, asset space, digital assets, and has some new funds uh, that are launching. And so I thought we, we got a chance here to sit down with Anthony and we'll do a quick uh, quick conversation on what's going on in crypto and digital assets. Anthony, welcome to San Francisco. It's great to see you. Uh, I guess the first thing is for our listeners, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background and kind of how uh, your path to
1: uh, becoming a digital assets investor. For sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, second is uh, I, um, I played football at Bucknell University, uh, was in the Army for uh, six and a half years, uh, did a deployment overseas before um, building and selling technology companies. Uh, and then I went and ran uh, product and growth teams at Facebook and Snapchat. Um, I started a venture capital fund called Full Tilt Capital uh, with my partner, Jason uh, Williams, uh, who had built and sold a half-billion-dollar healthcare company and um, invested in about 65 companies or so. Uh, that was going well, kind of industry agnostic. And during that time, um, we kept seeing founders pitch us on blockchain, crypto, et cetera. And uh, we'd made some investments um, in companies that were doing like anti-money laundering software Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, things that were related, but not necessarily blockchain or crypto. And so when we started looking at the space, uh, we came away with um, this idea of, I don't think that the ICOs and all of that was a great investment opportunity, right? This idea that uh, it was non-dilutive capital. There wasn't much of ownership, mm-hmm. governance, et cetera. But uh, the mining business was really interesting to me. So um, I've always been in the, mi- uh, the data center business for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I understood that business well. Mining was like data centers on Translate. steroids. Yeah. Yeah, it translates well. And, and so we started building mining facilities. And um, the great thing about starting with mining is uh, you start – producing Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so yeah. where do you store it? You go look at all the wallets, right? How do you get into fiat? You go look at all the exchanges and you kind of start solving your own problems. And I think Jason and I have said, there's a ton of opportunity here. Uh, there's not a lot of you know what we consider institutional grade investors yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're interested in it personally. We think there's a lot of that opportunity, and we think that we can build a firm um, that institutions want to partner with to deploy capital in the space. Uh, and so, I ended up merging our venture capital fund with uh, Morgan Creek, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as they say, the rest is uh, is history so far. So, so full tilt is that a play on uh, poker?
0: <laughs> it, uh, it,
1: it is. Uh, it's not. I, I didn't think about that before we named it. Uh, my, my buddy Jason uh, came up with uh, with the name. But um, full tilt, the definition is uh, uh, mass acceleration at top speed. And okay. so this idea that we could help companies go from a standstill basically starting to growth um, as quickly as possible. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and and uh, the fact that the poker analogy or, or reference came in um, was it? It was just an idea. Yeah, thing. I, mean, I was thinking
0: when I saw Full Tilt, I was thinking you know it's maybe a, some kind of connection to poker and bet sizing and how do you determine your bet size on a company? And yeah, what? Have I you. wish we were
1: that smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now,
0: how do you? How do you guys think about this when you're investing in a company? Uh, Is it kind of a standard size, depending on the round, if it's a seed round uh, or a Series A or what have you, Mm -hmm. that you have a kind of a goal of what you want to commit to a company? Or is it really case by case? Or how how do you guys think about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's two things, right? So one, um, it's important to understand our uh, investment philosophy really just comes down to founders, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a whole bunch of other stuff that um, that, that kind of goes into making an investment. Uh, I'm of the mindset that if you bet on the right people, they'll figure everything else out, yeah. right? So the best founders can recruit great talent. They can you know, overcome obstacles. Uh, whatever they're telling you in the pitch is probably not how it's actually going to turn out. Yeah. Um, there's pivots, there's challenges, all that stuff along the way. So just betting on the right people gives you the highest probability of succeeding. The second piece of that is um, I think a lot about sizing um, and both from a potential outcome standpoint uh, but also from the risk that we're taking right mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of times where we will actually size a investment uh, on the smaller end um, just because it's early yeah. and we have the benefit of with the fund um, I can actually spend a bunch of time with those companies and if they begin begin to get larger and kind of mm-hmm. grow and it's working uh, we can actually preempt future rounds etc. more capital behind no it.
0: Yeah, yeah when I was in the futures industry I was down at the Chicago Board of Trade and we always Said so you make you know ninety five percent of your profits from about five percent of your investments, mm-hmm. and then the the point is to know when to step on the accelerator mm-hmm. with the winners. And yeah, look,
1: m- Mark, Yusko, Mark Yusko, Mark uh, our third partner at Morgan Creek Digital, um, he's got the saying where he basically says you know the best investors do two things really well: they cut the losers early, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and they press into the winners. Yeah, right. So a lot That's of people right. kind of make an investment and oh, it's working. And they say, you know, we're geniuses, right? And they just let it run, and, and we're going to make a bunch of money here. Um, but the greatest investors actually say, I want to own as much of that company as I possibly can. And they mm-hmm. press into it when they know it's a winner. And so um, I think a lot about those two things, yeah. um, both from a cutting the losers in venture uh, Spending your time, right? right? How you want to allocate time, and, and and it's you know frankly a challenge for uh, guys like myself or Jason who have built companies before because you always feel like you could help save it, yeah, um, yeah. So and you and, want to get in the weeds and get in there and help, but yeah. you don't have so much time to do that. And, and, yeah. and what you realize is you're not running the company, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, look, most of the mistakes I've ever made in investing, meaning I made an investment in the company didn't end up working out, is times where. You know, we're sitting there thinking, Oh, this company could become X, Y, or Z or you know, this is how big it could be. Mm-hmm. We're thinking of it if we're running the company. Yeah. You've really gotta stay focused on, you know, if somebody else, you know, this founder is the one running the company, what is the potential for it, right? And, mm-hmm. and understand that if it's not working, um, your time is probably better spent with the companies that are going to return, you know, eighty, ninety, or more percent of right. uh, of the return, right. the return of the fund. And then when you're look when you're talking to founders,
0: are there any types of characteristics that you look for in a founder? Do you like to find founders that maybe are on their second or third effort on mm-hmm. starting a company, or does that not really factor in, or they
1: Yeah, uh, I I would say that there's no perfect recipe. Uh, One thing that I think a lot about is um, I really try to filter for founders that won't quit, Mm -hmm. right? And so – you know, look the founders that are uh, great salesmen, right? They can come in, they can do all this stuff. Uh, are usually the ones that uh, the ones that have the most bravado are usually the ones that quit first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that's something you see in the army all the time, right? The guy yeah. who says, "Hey, I can't wait to get to war," and then bullets start flying. Yeah, usually isn't the one that doesn't shoot back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's one thing that we definitely uh, pay attention to. And the second thing um, is the amount of transparency, honesty. Um, like kind of radical seeking of the truth, Mm -hmm. Um, these elements that uh, you see a founder who's willing to say, I don't know, right? "I I need help. Um, I, I don't have that answer but here's the five things I'm trying to do to go get that answer yeah. Um. Th- those elements to uh, a founder early on are important because it shows us they have the right frameworks to build the company and the organization um, whereas the founders who think that they've got all the answers they can do it themselves uh, they usually hit some sort of uh, limiting factor in the future uh, that, that makes it really hard to, uh, to grow a large business and what about
0: like the geographic location so are you um, primarily focused in the major
1: metropolitan markets
0: like You know New York and uh, SF and LA, or Mm -hmm. do you kind of are you kind of agnostic on that?
1: Yeah, so I I don't care about geography. I think uh, at Full Tilt um, in that fund, I think we invested in companies in fourteen different cities, Mm -hmm. um, all in the United States. Uh, and it 's not like we are saying hey we don 't want to invest in silicon valley yeah. right it 's just I want to find the best founders, yeah. and if they are living in San Francisco, great if they 're living in you know topeka that 's fine mm-hmm. as well um, and, and so uh, for us it 's uh no kind of mandate on location um, you know gender or any of this mm-hmm. stuff it 's just if you find the best founders uh, and you go into that with an open mind that they don't have to be in a certain location they don't have to be a certain gender they don't have to have you know x y or z credential um you end up with a pretty diversified pool of uh founders to mm-hmm. begin with uh which we think is uh is, is important yeah
0: that's interesting i mean i think uh you know there's there's all kinds of elements of diversification and actually you know the enthusiasm of the founder for the idea which usually I, it seems to be comes from a personal problem that they're trying to figure out how to eliminate a mm-hmm. lot a lot of times uh, can be, uh, you know, a good lead for for whether they will be able to stick with it and through the down times and what have you. Absolutely. Um, so the, um, uh, coming back to Bitcoin mining and, and Ethereum mining,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, there's all kinds of questions about, is there a floor on Bitcoin based on, you know, electricity consumption and what have you. I was, I was chatting with uh, some buddies of mine and we were talking about this, trying to figure it out, like, you know, is it. 3500 Is it 2600 And then another friend of mine made an interesting comment. He said, you know what? It doesn't really have a traditional floor like you'd have in copper mining or something like that where it no longer makes sense to deploy uh, the machinery to, to get the, the copper out of the ground because the coins are going to be released
1: anyways, mm-hmm. right? Well, well I, I always joke and I say the floor is zero, yeah. Right. You know, people forget. Well, well, Bitcoin can go to zero. Yeah. right? And it's important that people admit that they acknowledge that and mm-hmm. say, um, you know, there is still a high percentage chance that this all doesn't work um, in terms of Bitcoin being a currency that is just accepted globally, etc. When it comes to mining specifically, I think one, your friend's correct in that. The blocks are going to continue to um, kind of materialize every you know, 10 minutes or so, and, yeah. and so um, that's one component. The second component is uh, the Bitcoin algorithm, that, that mining reward algorithm is, uh, is beautifully designed in that uh, it really does um, adapt in a very dynamic way to uh, incentivize people on or off the network. Right, so if they need mm-hmm. more uh, mining power, it does a great job of doing that with difficulty adjustments, etc. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen that uh, over the last two and a half years or so, where when the you know price ran really high, all of a sudden difficulty you know ran with it, and mm-hmm. um, you know you, you kind of saw the impact of that. And then as the price dropped, I think a lot of people, especially the mainstream media, started talking about um, the death spiral. Yeah. Right. Oh, here we go. Everyone's gonna start shutting off the machines. There's not gonna have any support in the network, right. and it's over. Definitely remember that conversation. Um, yeah, and, and, and right around 6,500 when it fell. to yeah, like Three thousand. Yeah. It was you know you would have thought yeah. Bitcoin literally was dying, um, but what ends up happening is the difficulty drastically reduces, and the people who stick around actually made more money, mm-hmm. right? And so that that algorithm is really important, um, and then the third piece, uh, and, and the most important. Uh, exciting part to me is um, there's been multiple studies now that show like over 65% of all energy consumption in Bitcoin mining is renewable energy. It's mm-hmm. so, what you have is you have really smart entrepreneurs running around the world that are well capitalized looking for the best renewable energy. Um Maybe geothermal sources. or something like that. Hydro, Hydro, geothermal. I mean, you just go yeah. through the whole thing. Yeah. And so, uh, Jason and I actually, one of the four facilities we first built um, was a waste of energy. Mm -hmm. Crypto mine. And so we literally uh, take car tires uh, with a company called PRTI. Um, They take those car tires uh, as tire waste. Mm -hmm. Uh, They burn them inside of reactors in this um, process and they get oil, steel, and energy off the back end. And they sell the oil and the steel as a commodity and they get this power. And so it's essentially um free, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. power that you're using to mine. And so right. no matter where that price goes, you can keep mining because you're using the price agnostic free on power. electricity. Yeah. And so I think that there's uh, more and more people who are finding these energy sources and continuing mm-hmm. to uh, to use them. And so, you know, where is the floor for them? Well, if it's trading at a dollar, they're still gonna mine because that dollar yeah. is still profit
0: for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I was in Iceland uh, over the summer, and I bumped into a guy in a bar, and uh, he was actually there in Iceland for a mining operation. Really? Yeah, they were using, I guess, hydropower. Yep. I was like, "Damn!" Like that's interesting.
1: Absolutely. And
0: I guess the air, you know, that's so cold that they don't need as much, uh, you know, huge business in Iceland uh, warehouses. Yeah, absolutely. So very interesting. Um, So you guys, so the digital fund will be, uh, digital assets fund will be investing in equity in companies that are kind of. Um, doing the infrastructure, if you will,
1: or applications on top of these yeah, blockchain so we, assets. We have and two you, separate funds. The way yeah. we think about it is, we've got a public fund and a private fund. Yeah. Public meaning, um, we've got a uh, index fund that is um, kind of the S and P five hundred of crypto, right? Like so with a partnership with Bitwise. Bitwise, yeah. that's right. And so um, you know, it's a top ten cryptos, market weight average, rebalance mm-hmm. monthly, and then there's some liquidity requirements that uh, mimic. You know, why Tesla's not an S&P 500, right? right? Uh, and so that gives you just beta exposure to the liquid crypto market, right? Mm-hmm. Then we also have a uh, venture fund um, that we recently announced. Uh, we raised forty million dollars um, to go and put about eighty-five percent of it into the equity of uh, blockchain infrastructure companies. Mm-hmm. So this is companies you know like Coinbase, backed, etc. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about equity is many people see the price appreciation in the liquid market, mm-hmm. right? In crypto, and they're like, "Oh my God, it went up you know eight hundred percent last year, right? and yeah. whatever the numbers are for individual coins." But if you look, if you had invested in the seed or Series A of Coinbase, yeah. Binance, um, Kraken, et cetera, you actually have more appreciation on your investment than if you had invested in Bitcoin, Yeah, right? Well, and so far. equity can still outperform some of these liquid tokens if you're in the right investments. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only so many of them. you got to find them, right? you got to get into them, et cetera. So I think that's one piece. The second piece is um, the... People who are investors in this fund, so it's anchored by two public pensions, mm-hmm. uh, university endowment, hospital system, insurance company, private foundation, mm-hmm. et cetera. They basically are looking at it as you know, there's two pieces that we think are important. One is where does this money come from? Uh, as a capital allocator, mm-hmm. does it come out of you know? I'm thinking of crypto. Does it come out of my equity bucket? Does it come out of my cash bucket? My inflation hedge bucket? Yep. There's a bunch of different places you could make an argument for. Mm-hmm. By doing a venture capital fund, you know exactly where it's coming from. Right, right? it's right. coming from your equity bucket, yeah. right? And yeah. so um, that that kind of okay, I understand where the money's coming from. And then two is what am I buying? Mm-hmm. Right, what am I getting exposure to? When people walk in and say, "Oh, you should go into the liquid markets. You should buy Bitcoin. You should buy these other tokens that you may or may not have heard of." There's this big conversation around, well, what is that? Is yeah. it equity? Is it something else? The, the, How do I value zeros it? zeros and ones, these bits and it, bytes. It's and, hard, yeah. right? And, and it's new, and, and, and so it'll take time for people to get familiarized with it, for it to be demystified. Yeah. When we're talking about equity in private companies, it's really easy to understand, okay, I own something, I have some sort of recourse yeah. in governance, I know I'm going to monetize the investment, right? It's going to go public or it's going to get acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just really streamlines the risk that an institutional investor has to take by saying, do I want exposure to this industry or not? If I do, then let's do it in a way that I understand, I understand right? Yeah. Rather than try to completely learn something new, go to my board, you know, have all these questions, etc. And so um, it Took a long time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had to do a lot of education and all this stuff to get it done. Um, but, but I do think that uh, those investors see not only the long term potential from an innovation standpoint, but a big thing that got them excited is just how many uh, super successful founders are mm-hmm. going into the space, right? And yeah. so, do you think kind of top down, you've got the Mark Zuckerbergs, Jack Dorsey's, you know, all of those, even yep. Jamie Diamonds of the world, who are all going in, building in the blockchain space. But then you have all of this, uh, all these startup founders just flowing in. And so uh, I joke and say one of the first things I ever got told as an investor is just follow the talent. Yeah. Let them do all the work. Just follow them.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point because, you know, I spent about 15 years in the global macro hedge fund world. Mm -hmm. And I started out at the Chicago Board of Trade and then went to a hedge fund that was a spin out from PIMCO. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my macro hedge fund buddies – have all migrated into digital assets. Mm-hmm. So when I say that, I'm thinking of Novogratz, of mm-hmm. course, most probably most public. Uh, but Dan Moorhead from Pantera, who was a phenomenal macro investor, mm-hmm. saw this opportunity in 2013 or whatever it was, and was like, "I'm shifting. I'm yep. giving back all my money to macro clients, my LPs. And we're going to do this new thing." Yep. Uh, and then John Burbank, another mm-hmm. one. I mean, it's amazing how many of the really uber successful macro investors have switched gears and Absolutely. Say, this is where the future is.
1: Well, and, and I you know? think about it um probably a little bit differently than than some in that um this time is not different, mm-hmm. right, in the sense of um, every stock, bond, currency, and commodity is going to be digitized. So if you yeah. think we start out in an analog world, we uh, went to an electronic world, right? Mm-hmm. Electronic world is just the ability to trade ones and zeros on a screen, but you still have to settle the physical asset in the right. real world, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of two, three-day settlement times, et cetera. Now we're going to a fully digital world where the assets are digitally native, mm-hmm. meaning that the asset is created in the digital world. It stays in the digital yeah. world. It has no representation in the physical world. It is 100% digital asset. In order for that world to persist, all of the transactions have to be governed by digitally native contracts, Mm -hmm. right? So these smart contracts, programmable um, contracts. And then in order to have digitally native assets and digitally native contracts work, you need to have digitally native accounting. That's Mm -hmm. where the blockchain comes Mm -hmm. in, right? The ability for um, a computer file, right? right? All digitally native Asset is is a computer file. Mm-hmm. That computer file could be copied multiple times and sent to a ton of different people, and you don't know if you're getting the original or the duplicate. Yeah. Well, when you go to triple entry accounting, which is what a blockchain mm-hmm. is, triple entry accounting essentially allows you to um, t- keep track of your own personal ledger, the person you're transacting with ledger, and a public ledger. Yeah. So by having that triple entry accounting, it prevents anybody from duplicating computer files and sending it to multiple people. Right. And so when you really think about this, digitally native assets, digitally native accounting, digitally native contracts, all we're talking about is the foundation for an automated world, Mm -hmm. right? A world that is run by algorithms and machines and It's hard to find people who don't think that's coming. Now, when is it coming? How pervasive it will be? All all of that's up for debate. But if we're moving towards that automated world, um, the joke I use is uh, the machines don't want our paper money,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Meaning that the the
1: algorithms aren't going to send paper money to each other. They need digitally native assets, and I think that's really what's happening.
0: Yeah, I mean I I hardly ever use cash anymore. (laughs) I mean anywhere in the Bay Area, you can get around with just Apple Pay or your Venmo or whatever, uh, tap your phone. Yeah, it's pretty and so I amazing. think a
1: lot of those macro guys, what they saw was, look, it's the same thing. It's still macro investing, yeah. right? You're just using a new underlying technology, but it's still stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. Yep just digitally native assets. Yeah. And so it makes sense that they would be some of the early ones to go in and kind of see yeah, the opportunity. I mean,
0: definitely when you think about a macro investor, the best ones are really good at identifying transformational events, mm-hmm. whether it's you know farming in Uruguay or you know, the collapse of the British pound and the mm-hmm. European exchange rate mechanism or this new digital asset. Absolutely. I was chatting with one of my buddies and he, he broke it down really, what I thought was eloquently. He said, look, you know, we started out with stones for money we went to the seashells and then we went to fiat paper and now we have the digital currency, but you've never actually throwing gold in between, but you've never gone from gold back to, you know, shells. You've never gone from you know, uh, paper money to carrying gold in your, Mm -hmm. your, you know, so kind of a natural evolution to go to this digital currency.
1: Yeah. And and the other piece too, is there's a a generational trend as well, right? Um, Younger, you know, look, I'm I'm 30 years old and I'm, uh, I think a lot about how lucky I am. Uh, I was just old enough and cognizant enough to see the global financial crisis, mm-hmm. but not have enough assets where I really was hurt by it. Right, yeah. most people my age. And so, what we got to see was these institutions that most of our parents thought would never fail. Yeah. Right, they, they were just the absolute, banks. you know, kind of um, behemoths. Yeah actually got put on their knees, mm-hmm. right? And so, okay, yeah. maybe they aren't as sturdy as we thought they were. Then two is uh, we've grown up with a phone in our hands, mm-hmm. right? My phone's glued to my hand and I can do everything else on my phone. Why can't I do the transactions mm-hmm. of assets? Your finance stuff, yeah. And so I think that you're seeing a lot of young people who um, they just, of course, I'm going to be able to use my phone or computer mm-hmm. to do this stuff. Um, and, and the technology is now catching up to those kind of generational trends, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is important.
0: So then, um, you know, institutional investors obviously starting to dip their toes in this space. And I think, um, you know, the way you laid it out with, you know, first dipping your toes into a venture makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense. And I, We definitely think of it from my perspective as an institutional asset allocator. You know, where do you make your money? Is it from equity risk premium? Is it uh, credit risk premium mm-hmm. or, you know, commodity risk premium, what have you? Um, one of the big questions that when I talk to my buddies in this space, you know, other pension CIOs, is, well, the custody issue. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I know Fidelity's made some rumblings that they're going to be yep. getting into the custody space. I know, uh, I think it was Northern Trust mm-hmm. was recently talking about getting into custody of digital assets, and I'm guessing State Street would eventually get there.
1: Yeah, so um, I, the, the way I think about this is. Um, Again, if you're investing 100% of the capital into equity, mm-hmm. right? Custody is pretty simple. Yeah, it's, it's just straightforward. Like any other equity investment yeah. you would make. Um, if you're going to gain exposure to liquid crypto, which is where the custody yeah. question comes in, yeah. there's multiple ways to do it. So, one is you could get direct exposure, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're Putting the burden of custody on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that. Uh, two is you can do it through funds. So mm-hmm. either you're going into an actively managed fund or a passive fund. Um, those funds normally uh, will not do self custody mm-hmm. because they have uh, a you know some sort of diligence process that they are they know they're going to go through, and yeah. so they're using third party custody. Whether you use third party custody or they use it, when you look at that landscape, um, three years ago, no qualified custodians for crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, we could say it was risky at best (laughs) on the custody side. It has drastically improved. So now you have Gemini, you've got Coinbase, you've got BitGo, you've got Kingdom Trust, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can just go down the line. There's yeah. a bunch of custody providers. Um, and many of them have gotten licensing. They're now, uh, some of them have insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So, BitGo, for example, um, a, a company that uh, we're invested in has um, $100 million of insurance from Lloyd's of London Network. So, right? be like
0: if you got hacked and somebody hacked, stole stolen, or somebody died and lost, forgot the password. All that stuff.
1: Yeah. And so, what you're starting to see again is, uh, uh I, I think that you would be um, incorrect to say that the infrastructure for custody in the digital asset space mirrors the same custody that you expect mm-hmm. in kind of traditional Wall Street assets. Traditional public assets. Yeah. But I do think that, uh, one, it has drastically improved. Two, it is now at a point where institutional investors can get comfortable with mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, look, we took money from two public pensions, and yeah. we went through their due diligence process. Yeah. You and can congratulations imagine on that, all that I think stuff that was that a, big,
0: uh, a big win to see a public pension plan. Kind of finally come into the space, and I think it—it it probably takes you know three or four, you know, public pension plans coming in. Yep. To you know, for people to say, okay, it's okay for me to get in the water here. Look, uh, the
1: the credit absolutely goes to the two CIOs yeah. um, who who did this, Andy Speller and Catherine Monar. I mean, yeah. they they um, not Super only saw the opportunity, right? I think that they were very forward thinking and understanding mm-hmm. uh, the impact that getting any exposure to the industry could have on the portfolio, uh, and. and What a lot of fund managers, when they come to me now, they say, well, you know, what are the things you talk about to those types of institutional investors? It's not about decentralizing the world and, you know, changing Mm -hmm. the world. It's about the idea that, the you know let's take liquid crypto for example Uh, most of the liquid market is non-correlated asymmetric return assets Mm -hmm. that if you put it into a portfolio you can actually risk a very small portion of your portfolio and have material impact on the overall portfolio performance
0: no i think that's right i mean there's some i've been you know again bouncing these ideas with other cios in the public space and it's like geez you know even a one percent allocation to digital assets could really have a very meaningful impact if things
1: work out the way that, uh, we think there's potential for them to work out for sure, um, well, what other asset take bitcoin for example bitcoin's at like a fifty sixty billion dollar market cap, and let's say that it has fifty to one hundred x upside mm-hmm. you know yeah. what what other fifty billion dollar asset could go up fifty x right exactly <laughs> M- and, maybe there's one or two right there 's yeah, not very many of them no
0: absolutely and I mean and you think about a pension fund you know that's probably got a twenty five percent underfunded status typically mm-hmm. um, you know a small position in a Bitcoin could potentially be. Uh, something that could get them back on track of being you know funded oh, absolutely that would be a controversial comment, but i think that's i think that 's accurate I
1: think that people who hear that will think it is controversial in our opinion uh that 's exactly how uh to think about a non correlated asymmetric return asset yeah. When you have permanent capital, that's the other piece, right, is uh, this asset is volatile. And so if you are, you know, um, hey, I'm going to make an investment and in one year I need to get the money back, Mm -hmm. probably not the asset to do it, right? Um, But if you're able to say, look, I have a five- or ten-year time horizon and I can make an investment, I can weather the volatility, and I look at it more as that on that five-year timeline, actually the non-correlated asymmetric return asset of Bitcoin is is, – Super interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, and the non
0: correlation is so key. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you know, it's the The secret sauce in and why these
1: portfolios uh, look, I look I, as many people listening probably know I'm, I'm somewhat of a smart ass on Twitter sometimes yeah. because uh, you know, I, I try to use humor um, as a way to open people's eyes mm-hmm. to some of the facts and uh, last October uh, Bitcoin was more uh, or Bitcoin was less volatile than the S&P 500 the Dow and the Nasdaq hmm. right now it was only for one month, right? So it's not – I don't think it will happen again for a while. Yeah. But the idea that this asset we think of as super volatile was actually less volatile than the three major yes, you know, indices. not intuitive. Eh, pretty yeah, pretty interesting stat, yeah. right? And now let's see if it happens again, when it happens, et cetera. But I do think we're seeing kind of early data points that suggest you know, this is going to be a real asset. Mm-hmm. It does deliver on some of the promises of non-correlation and asymmetric mm-hmm. return. And at some point in the future, it actually may be much less volatile than it is today. And, you know, real briefly, um, touching on the ICO world,
0: the difference between a token and a security mm-hmm. and the questions around regulation and what's going on with the CFTC, SEC, et cetera. Do you have any quick thoughts on that space
1: and what, what you're thinking on a forward-looking basis there? Yeah, so I, I pretty much tell all of our founders the same thing. There, is, there are rules, mm-hmm. right? The rules exist, and the rules that we have today are going to be applied in whatever form or fashion that the regulators want to Mm -hmm. until we have clarity for digital assets specifically. So we need clarity. That would be fantastic to have. But until then, the rules apply. And so um, work with the law firm. And if the law firm says this is probably a security, you should treat it like a security. (laughs) right. Um, I've never understood... You know, folks who want to make an argument that, uh, hey, we have this thing that looks like a security, smells like a security, acts like a security. We even market it like a security, yeah. but it's not a security. It's not a security. It's right. an ICO. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so again, you know, for us um, at Morgan Creek Digital specifically, uh, the ICOs are less interesting mainly because, again, who our clients are, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're managing this, you know, kind of very conservative capital. Yeah. Uh, and then two is… Um, we think that for a founder, an ICO is an amazing opportunity. You raise non-dilutive capital. You can raise a lot of it from anybody in the world, right? There's all these components that are really, uh, positive, But for an investor, I actually want governance. I want recourse. I want ownership, right? Right. And so the the kind of holy grail is going to be when people can use the ICO mechanism or the token mechanism and give investors recourse, governance, ownership, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of convergence in the middle um, I think is kind of a more fair market and something Mm -hmm. we'll get excited about. But the liquid uh, ICOs where we don't have that stuff, um, again, not that the founders shouldn't do that. It's just probably not the right investment for us.
0: And what's – like – is there like your most recent public investment that you could talk about? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was interesting to you and why you invested in it.
1: Yeah, look, I'll, um, I'll, I'll talk about Figure, um, which is uh, yeah. Mike Cagney, the former founder of uh, SoFi. Yeah. Um, he, Another he, macro uh, investor absolutely Cabazon
0: that went into digital assets exactly I've known, known Mike since 2004
1: oh amazing That's crazy. so yeah so Mike built you know SoFi four, four and a half yep. billion dollar uh, company and, uh, and now what he's basically doing uh, the first product for figure is uh, home equity loans so mm-hmm. um, the part that I like about Mike is when I first started talking to him uh, he never mentioned block, blockchain or crypto yep. he said look we're going to basically issue home equity loans in five days or less and we think we can do it cheaper, faster, more efficient and more securely than anybody else mm-hmm. how are you going to do that? Oh, we're gonna build this blockchain, we're gonna use it, blah, 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 whatever, right? Yeah. And so uh, the business has uh, absolutely exploded. Um, they recently announced uh, the round of funding, they raised $65 million. It's like us, DST Global, yeah. Ribbit, DCM, et cetera. Uh, they're originating over a million and a half dollars a day in loans. Um, and what you start to realize is uh, the blockchain is just the accounting system, yeah. right? And he's able to show now that you can do it cheaper. You can do it more efficiently. You can do it faster, more securely, et cetera. And so I think that um, you know that's a deal that we're, one, super excited about. He's doing a great job. But two is that mechanism of using this technology to attack uh, incumbent industries mm-hmm. and just say, look, I just have a new piece of technology. Yeah. It's not about decentralizing the world. It's not about all this stuff, Right. I can use this to actually a, change a the world more efficiently. Now what he is doing is he is decentralizing it to an yeah. extent, right? That just happens to be something that happens. Um, but, but I do think that that's the mechanism that we get most excited about is when a founder comes to us, yeah. says, here's the problem I'm solving. And Oh, by the way, I happen to use this technology. Yeah, right? Mike is another amazing entrepreneur. I have a
0: great story with that. He's, I met him in 2004 at Steve Drobny's conference down in LA. Okay. And, um, 2013, I think it was, um, got a call from Jeff Lonsdale. Mm hmm. And he said, "Hey, you got to come check this new company out that uh, Mike Cagney's started up." So I went over to Mike's house, and they had this big uh, uh, wine tasting thing going on, and uh, they were talking about SoFi and you know the next round and what have you. And um, I had been a macro fixed income investor, mm-hmm. and so one of Mike's buddies, uh, Gordon Getty was at the house, and Mike said, hey, Gordon, you know, you were asking about JGBs. You should chat with Sean, because he really knows a lot about JGBs and uh, trading in Japan. And so I ended up chatting with Gordon for like an hour and a half, mm-hmm. and I missed the pitch on SoFi. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I didn't, didn't think anything of it at the moment. I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll get back to this, I'll circle back. Next thing I knew, it was like off to the races. Exploded. Exploded. And it, I got to thinking about another good friend of mine, Pete Hartigan, who's just a mind in the fintech space, mm-hmm. uh, he kind of opened up my eyes on this whole idea that, you know, there's going to be a winner in fintech that's going to be like the Amazon of fintech. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, you know, if you dominate a market like the way SoFi don't dominates student loans, you know, the next natural evolution is to move into the swim lane next to you. So in their yep. case, it was mortgages, and then it was going into investment management, wealth management, what have you. And uh, that got me really, uh, really interested in the space and where I started to spend a lot of time on it. And uh, so I missed Sofi. Was really bummed out about that. Um, but I got into Avant, uh, Adjoint, uh, didn't write for yourself. Yeah, some other interesting, you know, uh, companies. And I got to talk to Mike about Figure. I got to give him a call on that. It's, uh, it's a great one. For another sure. great company. Well, yeah. all right. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for the time and uh, really glad we got a chance to sit down and talk about some of this stuff. I think the listeners will really find it super interesting. I, I and, appreciate uh, the opportunity. I'm, uh, I'm excited
1: you're doing this and I think people will learn a lot from it. Yeah, thanks a lot.